I want to say to those who are watching uh, online today that we are having some internet issues. It's not here with us, but it's out with our, uh, our company that does that. And so it's kind of intermittent this morning. So I'm hoping that we don't lose our, uh, our guys that are watching online. But if we do, y'all stick with us and hopefully it'll kick back in and we'll catch back up. So we'll do the best we can with technology that we've got. So uh, anyway, this morning we're going to be in the book of Hebrews again. Uh, we have uh, been studying through this book and just a, a real quick recap of, of kind of the audience that this letter is addressing. It's a, it's a group of, uh, of Jews that have become believers in Christ. Uh, they've met Jesus. We believe this is a book written uh, not so much evangelistically as it is to, to strengthen the body of believers. And so these Jews had converted to Christianity. The temple was still uh, intact. In the temple was still uh, being used for uh, Jewish sacrifices and Jewish worship. And, and the believers knew that when they came to Christ for salvation that all their sins in the past had been forgiven. They, they were comfortable with that. But like for you and I, the, the, the sins that they had in their past didn't just disappear. They still wrestled with those sins. And, and part of the struggle that they were facing and that the writer of Hebrews is trying to address is they didn't know what to do with their present sin. What do I do when I sin now? And, 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 and I sin again and again and again, and I'm, I'm still trying to, to get past this, this old life and, and, and become this new person that Christ has created me to be. And so part of their struggle was, what do I do to show God that I'm serious? And for some of them, they were going back to that sacrificial system. So they would hear the gospel, they would respond, and they would let Christ forgive all their past. But then when they fell back into sin, they're like, okay, I need to prove to God that I'm serious. And they would go back to this works theology of Judaism, where they would go back to the temple. They would participate in sacrificial systems and say, well, I just need to, I need to show God that I'm, that I'm really sincere. And that's not so unlike us in, in our day and time, because what happens so many times in, in Christianity is that we, we do come to Christ in salvation, and then we're, we're striving to walk with God, and, and, and we fail again and again. And sometimes it's the same sin that trips us up over and over, and, and we feel like that we've got to do something to show God that, we're, that we really mean business, that we're not just playing games. And so we may beat ourselves up for a while. We may kind of put ourselves in prison and, 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 and be really sad for a while or, or act really repentant and, and kind of go back and think, or maybe I just need to work harder or I need to do something extra or maybe I'm going to go to two church services this week instead of just one to show God that I'm really repentant. So it's a real temptation, not just for them, but for us. And that's where these people are. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to them, if we could kind of sum up, I guess, the whole book is to say, Salvation is by grace and grace alone. It's not grace plus anything else that you and I can do. And when we begin to take grace and add to it, then we change it. And we talked about this, but if you took a bottle of water and you took one of those Kool-Aid pouches, and I can say, man, this is, this is good, clean, cold, pure water. But the minute I pour Kool-Aid into it and shake it up, it becomes something different. It becomes Kool-Aid or lemonade, or iced tea, or whatever it was that I added to it, that's what it becomes. And grace, when you add to it, you change grace. Grace can't be earned. It can't be deserved. It can't be something that you and I work for. It's something that, by definition, God gives to us who are undeserving. And so that's where this book is headed. And, and, and we've looked at the first three chapters together, and today we want to kind of jump into to chapter 4. And, uh, and I, I remind you this, that the book of Hebrews is more of a pastoral letter than it is a book of theology. Now, it has theology in it, and it's a letter that's based upon theology, so we don't throw the theology out, but it wasn't written to be this theological, systematic theological book. That's not the purpose. It's a pastor writing to these people, urging, begging, pleading for them not to fall away from grace 
into a grace works thing, but to stick with grace and grace alone. We talked about how that when we try to add works to grace, that it creates this unrest, this uncertainty. It, it, it brings this, this, all the security that we have in Christ and what he did just kind of fades away. And all of a sudden, we, we're left with the questions, have I done enough? Have I beat myself up enough for my sin? Have I done enough to make up for it? Have I, have I done enough to get God to love me? And there's all these other things that kind of come in the back door when we begin to add anything to grace. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing as a pastor to these people, urging them to, to, to not depart from the grace that saved them. So in chapter 4, he, uh, he begins again to, uh, to help us to see uh, the call back to this grace and, and grace alone. Um, he, he's going to say this, and, and I think it's important to kind of point this out. He's going to talk about the difference between the root and the fruit, okay? When you have a tree that's growing, you've got, you got the roots that are in the ground, but those roots are going to be what produces the fruit. And, and, and the root that they're battling with here, the, the root of this vine that's growing, is unbelief. So he's going to come back again and again and talk about unbelief. But unbelief is going, to, it's going to produce fruit that's going to look like disobedience or sin or rebellion. And so he talks about the children of Israel in, in the Old Testament. And he talks about their sin and their rebellion and, and, and their turning against God. But all of those things flowed out of a heart that did not believe. They didn't believe that God could deliver them. They didn't believe that God could see them through. They didn't believe that God could get them into the promised land himself. And so their, their, their unbelief is what created all the actions that we see in their lives and all the things that the writer of Hebrews talks about. And so what happens is, and this is kind of the pattern that we see in this text, is that, that belief brings rest, but unbelief brings unrest. And so in chapter 4, the parts that we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 13, uh, he starts off with a warning to the people, and then he comes back and he kind of illustrates it as a pastor might do. He, he follows that illustration with this encouragement for them to, to come back to the grace of God, and then he applies it to their life, and he ends it with a warning that we will one day stand before God and give an account for whether we heard the words and applied them to our lives. So let's look at this passage together. I want to kind of read through it with you, and then uh, I want to bring back, um, come back and kind of uh, talk about what it says about us as humans, what it says about God, and then what we're to do with this and how we're to live in response to, the, to this gospel. So chapter 4, verse 1, he says this. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So what he's saying is there's, he's calling them back to this, this eternal rest, this entering into God's rest. He's talking about not just their salvation, but this, this being at peace with God. He's going to come a little bit later on in this chapter. He's going to talk about the, the Sabbath rest that God had. And you remember when God created it. It said in six days God created, and on the seventh day God rested. It wasn't just God resting because God was tired. But, but that, that rest that he, that he talks about back in, in the, the very beginning of Genesis was God, this, here's what God did. For six days, God created, and he formed and he filled the earth. And the seventh day, you know what God did? He enjoyed his creation. 
He came and dwelt among them. Scripture says that he walked with them in the cool of the evening. And, and that's that rest, that union with God, that fellowship with God, that, that peace with God, that, 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 that presence of God. And so when he calls us to rest here, he's telling to us that, that intimacy with God. He's not saying, hey, look, you need to not, not cut your grass on Sunday. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying God has done all this stuff through grace and he calls you to enjoy his rest. To come and just be with him. Be at home with him. Be at peace with what he's done for you. And so he's saying, hey, there's still this promise of of you entering God's rest. Now he's writing to those who have kind of departed from the grace and gone back to some works. And he's going, guys, it's not too late for you to turn around. It's not too late for you to come back and to to, to enjoy this relationship with him, to, to be reunited with him, to enter into his rest. And so he says, let us do this. Let us fear. Let us be very careful, very cautious, unless any of us would seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, you can live your life with this unbelief and, and, and live in, in unrest. And I believe there's believers that, that do that. They, they come and they mean well. They invite Christ to be the Lord and the Savior of their life. But somewhere along the way, they fall back into this goodness gospel, this idea that I've got to do good to get God to love me. I've got to continue to do good to, to, to show God that I'm serious. And, and they fall back into this grace and works combination. And he's saying, come back while there's an opportunity. While, while God still has this window of opportunity available, I want you to come back to grace and to grace alone. Because if you don't do that, you're going to fail to reach the, this, this, this relationship that God has for you. Not that you'll lose your salvation, but you'll live your life with this uncertainty. You'll live this life with this unrest inside of you, not ever knowing that, that you are pleasing to God, that he's made you pleasing. So he's saying, come back while there's time. And then he illustrates it. He says, for the good news came to us just as it came to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So he draws a distinction here between hearing and and listening. He's saying there's those that heard the message, but it didn't do them any good because it was just another message. It was just another thing that they heard. And and they heard, but it didn't change their life. It didn't benefit them at all. And they didn't unite it with faith. And they weren't united with those who did have faith. And so he's calling them back and he's saying, listen, I want you to do this so that you don't fail to reach it. And, and he says, understand this, it's not enough just to hear the message. It's not enough for us to, to be able to repeat the gospel. We need to live in that gospel every moment of every day. So the good news came to us just like it came to them. But for them, it did no, it did no benefit. It didn't benefit them because they failed to unite it with faith. But we who have believed enter into that rest. So he's saying here, you can hear and and not be benefited if you don't have the faith to act upon it. And he's saying here, we have entered that rest, those of us who believe, and we trust that God is all-sufficient, we trust that God's grace is enough, then we enter into this this rest, this this peace of God. Do you understand that when, when you grab the concept of grace and grace alone, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less because you're his. And when that sinks in, there is such a freedom and such a peace. You can let down and say, Lord, I just want to thank you for that. 
I don't have to work myself silly. I don't have to prove to everybody that I'm the best. I don't even, I don't, I don't have to be on this, this treadmill of just constantly running. I can rest in you. And there's a peace of knowing that I belong to you, that you belong to me, that we are forever united and that your love for me can, can, can never change. And there is peace that comes from that. It's so counter to, to where we live in our culture because our culture says it's all about us and, it's, and we are self-made men and self-made women and, 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 and it's this idea that we've got to, to, to do it. And, and everything that we do, we talked about this in our small group last week, but, but we live in a society that measures everything we do. You have a GPA in high school, a GPA in college. You have a batting average if you play baseball. You have a quarterback rating if you play quarterback. They even time how fast you release the ball as a quarterback. Everything you do nowadays is measured and quantified, and, and, and you're graded upon that. Every position in the NFL now is, is compared to every other person in that position, and you're ranked the, the, you know, whether you're the best tackle or best guard or best tight end. And, and everything we do is, is about our performance. But grace is not about that at all. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Jesus has done. And that's what makes us acceptable to God. So he says, when we believe, we enter this rest. We experience the fulfillment of God's promise that we are, uh, we are his. And nothing can change that. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Talking about the, the wilderness generation, the children of Israel that he delivered from Egypt who refused to believe him, who refused to trust him. And he says, because they lived in unbelief, they also lived in unrest. They could not enter into my, my rest. And here's, here's kind of a parenthesis he throws in. He says, they, they will never enter my rest, although his works were finished. From the foundation of the world. God had done everything necessary for them to enter into this relationship with him. To to experience his grace. To watch him work on their behalf. He had done all of that. And it was all done. And they refused to enter his rest. Now we know for them in that day in in the Old Testament. That God brought them all the way right to the edge of the promised land. You remember that story? And they decided to send spies in and to look at the land and to, to bring back a report. And they come back and say, oh, man, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way that we can do this. And they refused to take the land that God had given them. And as a result, they died in their unbelief in the wilderness. And God had to raise up a new generation that would trust and would believe and would put their faith in what God did and not what they did. Does your salvation rest in your mind on what you can do? Or is your salvation based strictly upon what Jesus has already done? It's a huge difference in that. When we live thinking that salvation is somehow based upon what we do, that my relationship with God is based somehow upon what I do and how well I perform, then we're sadly mistaken. And and that's what they did there, and there's no rest in that. And he says, although God's done everything from the foundation of the world, Scripture says Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Everything needed for your salvation, for your sanctification, God's going to provide. He's already made plans for that. And so redemption was certain and nothing was needed. It was established before creation. He was going to complete it upon the cross. But it's all been done. And then he says, for God has somewhere spoken. He's somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Again, he's taking us back to Genesis. 
And that rest was not, oh, God's exhausted. That's not what it was. His rest is this, that God had, had formed and filled the earth, and now God sits back to enjoy what he's created. He came to his creation, and he dwelt with them. And that's what God desires to do in us. He, he, has, he has created us. He has made salvation possible. He's brought us by grace into this relationship. And now he wants to have this relationship with us. He wants us to be in relationship with him. And he says, God rested on the seventh day. And again in the passage, he says, they will not enter my rest. Those who have unbelief would not do that. So here's God. He's enthroned as a king over his creation. We see God as ruling over all that he has made. And now he's taking time to be with his creation. We are called into that same rest to know that we can't work for our salvation, that we can't do anything to earn our salvation, but that God has done it all and he has made it possible and he's brought us to that place. And now he says, I want you to rest and enjoy what I've created for you. I want you to rest and enjoy the grace that I offer to you. And so he comes back in verse six. And he begins to make some application here. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, there's still time, he says, for you to come through grace. And and he reminds us that those who formerly received the good news, but they failed to enter because of their disobedience. And again, that disobedience is the root of the fruit of unbelief. And so he says it it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received it or heard the message, the good news, failed to enter because of their disobedience. And so again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When I read this and I think about the word today, I think about what what he's trying to say here, that this is a, a renewal that we need day after day after day. I need to be reminded daily to depend upon God's grace. I need to be reminded daily that it takes his grace to get me through another day, that I need his grace to to be poured out on me today so that I can pour it out and extend it to others in their life. And and it's a day-by-day thing. And that's why I think he says three or four different times here in this passage that, that today, when God extends his grace, dwell in it, enjoy it, revel in it. it it's, it's for you today, and that grace will be new again tomorrow and, and the day after that. And so when the grace is extended, enjoy that. Don't harden your hearts. Don't, don't hold back, but enjoy that grace. And then he wants to make clear to his readers that the rest that God is speaking about is not just rest on this earth. So he goes back to Joshua, the one who led the children of Israel across the Jordan River and allowed them to inhabit the, the promised land that their parents refused to inhabit. And so they finally get there with Joshua. They cross the land. God, God routes their enemies, and he gives them that land. And then God says, but guys, that's not the rest. That's not all the rest that I intended for you. Look what he says. For if Joshua had given them rest, if Joshua had been able to unite them with God and give them the rest that God was after, the, the fulfillment of all the promise that God made, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. So remember how he said in this, in this Old Testament that, that God's giving us a picture in the Old Testament, but he gives us the person, the reality 
in the New Testament. And how that sometimes we, we, we love the picture, but, but why would we settle for the picture when we've got the real deal right there in front of us? And so here's the picture again. He's saying, look, you look back at Joshua and you go, man, if the children of Israel, they, they finally got the promised land, God fulfilled his promise, everything's done. And he says, that's not all that God had for them. In fact, they, they, they entered the land, but they never entered his rest. There was more that he would speak of later on. So then, he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains this reuniting with God, this, this God coming with his people and his people with his God. And, and that remains a rest for the people of God, for believers. That Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. What's he saying? Just as God had worked those six days and then God rested, he was setting forth this pattern that, that God was going to do his work and then God was going to rest. And then he invites us into his rest to come into his presence, to enjoy what he has done on our behalf. And he invites us into that rest. He doesn't say, get your life cleaned up and then come to me. He doesn't say, get everything right and then come to me. He doesn't say, you know, punish yourself and then, and then when you've done enough of your, your penance, then you can come to me. He says, I've done the work of redemption. I want you to come now into my rest and come enjoy this redemption that I've made possible for you. And then when we enter God's rest, we also rest from our works. Here's that call from grace plus, just back simply to grace. Come back and rest in the grace, not grace plus works. So he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Kind of an interesting combination of works. Strive, I want you to work to enter rest. Well, what he's saying when he says the word strive is not just to work. He's saying make it your goal. Make it your goal to make sure that you enter that rest, that you live in the grace of God and the rest that comes from the grace of God. Make sure that you rest in that so that no one will fall by the same sort of disobedience. The sin of the children of Israel was the sin of unbelief. They didn't believe that God was able to do everything that he had promised. He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, but they looked at that land and the fruit was great, but the enemy was even greater. And they doubted that God could give that to them. And for you and I, we, 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 we hear about grace. We study about grace. And we go, man, that grace is, that is just incredible. But I don't know how to enter that. And I don't know that God can really deliver on that. Or I, I don't know that that grace is really as good as it sounds. And we begin to live in unbelief. And that unsettles our hearts. It unsettles our spirit, and it leaves us questioning whether God can really do what grace says that he can do. And so we say, well, look, we'll take a little bit of grace, but we'll, we'll add some stuff to it just to make sure that everything is, is good and, and, and is right. And the writer of Hebrews here is saying, no, you, you come into his rest and you stop from your works. You stop trying to add to what he's already done. Can you imagine if God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, created it all, put them all in the garden, and then Adam goes, oh, hey, by the way, God, there's something you left undone. I need to, I need to, I need to finish your work here. It had been ridiculous to think God could create it all, but, but maybe he just couldn't get some of it done, and Adam just needed to come along and, and, and finish what God had, had started. 
or somehow improve upon what God had provided for him. That's part of the fall, by the way, is, is, hey, God's holding out on you. There's something you can do. And, and that always gets us in trouble. So here he's saying, listen, strive to, to make sure that what you've really entered is that rest. I thought about an illustration that, that may help, but can you imagine rushing into the airport? You've got a flight to catch, and you're running late, or maybe it's a connecting flight, and you've gotten off of one flight, and you're trying to run and get on the second plane, and, and, and you jump on this plane, and you, you run down the, the, the little passageway, and you get on the plane, you take a seat, and the plane begins to take off, and the pilot comes on and says, hey, welcome to our flight. We are headed to, and he names a destination. That's not where you're headed. You're on a flight. You're comfortable. You've got your free bottle of water. And all of a sudden you realize, I'm headed to the wrong place. Now, we've built a lot of security now where that doesn't happen a lot in our day and time. But can you imagine if that did? Here, here you are just rushing to get somewhere, and you finally get there, and you sit down, and you go, all right, here we are. We caught our flight. Let's go. And as the plane takes off, you realize, I'm on the flight going in a direction that I don't need to be going. I think that happens to us sometimes as Christians, is that if we don't really take care, and, and if we don't, he says, while it's here, let us, let us make sure, let us be cautious that, that what we're really entering into is God's rest and not some kind of a cheap substitute, not some kind of a lesser thing than what God had intended for us. So he calls us to, to make sure that we strive to enter that rest so that we don't fall by the disobedience that they fell by. And then he says, I've given you something to help you do that. And that's the word of God. And in this context comes that passage that so many of us have, have quoted for so many years where he says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What's he saying? He said, I give you the word of God that can search the depths of your heart, your thoughts and your intentions and, and, and those things in the deep recesses of your heart to make sure that you're doing what you're doing out of the right reason. You realize that you and I can do good things for bad reasons? Is it wrong for you and I to desire to serve the Lord? No. Is it wrong for you and I to desire to share our faith? Is it wrong for you and I to, to look for folks in our community that we can serve and we can give to and that we can help and we can walk with and we can go through the trials? Is any of that wrong? It's not. But it's wrong if I'm doing that to try to make God love me. It's wrong if I'm doing that from the wrong motives. And he says, I'm giving you the word of God, and the word of God can help you to check your motives and to make sure that you're not working for grace, but that you're working from grace. That you're not working for acceptance, but that you're working out of a sense that you've already been accepted. That you're not working to get God to love you, but you're working because God already loves you. And sometimes that's hard for us to discern our motives. He says, but I've given you the word of God. And it's like this sharp, double-edged sword. And it's alive and it's active. It's at work in your life. And it can penetrate down to the, to the depths of your soul. And it can lay bare for you your motives. And you can see why you do what you do. And he says it's important that that happens because there, there is no creature that's hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
to whom we must give an account. So in this passage today, what he's trying to say to us is this, that that God is not only offering grace to us, but he gives us his word that that looks deep within us and it, it, it examines the depths of our hearts so that we can know where we really stand. We can know why we do the things that we do. And we can make sure that our lives are built upon grace, that that's just grace alone. He says if we don't understand grace, then what begins to happen is that the word of God feels like this cruel instrument just laying us bare for everybody to see our faults. And that's never been the purpose of the word of God. It's, it's, not, it's not this thing that leaves behind this guilt and this shame But when we understand grace correctly, then we see the word of God as an instrument of of healing. That God, like a a doctor taking a scalpel and cutting you open so that he can can open you up and he can take out what doesn't belong. And then healing can begin. That's the purpose of the word of God. If I don't understand grace, then I don't want to go to the word of God. Because all the word of God is going to do is convict me that I'm a sinner. And that I've fallen short again. And that I have, that I have messed up and I've missed God's plan and God's purpose. And I'm, I'm just not getting it. And, and, and you get a big enough dose of that and you feel the guilt of the, of the word of God when you don't understand the grace. Then all of a sudden you go, I think I'm just going to skip my quiet time today. I think I'm just going to set aside the word of God and just kind of, you know, coast for a little while. Why? Because if I don't understand grace, then the word of God seems harsh. But when I understand grace and I see the word of God as revealing those faults, but then coming right back and saying, but those have been covered by my grace. Then instead of feeling the guilt, I feel gratitude. Because I can say, you know what, Lord, you're right. I did fall short. I did say something wrong. I did hurt somebody else. But God, by your grace, that's been covered. By your grace, that's been taken care of. So the word of God cuts, but it cuts to heal and not to hurt. It reveals our sin, but it should result in gratitude to God for the grace that he's already applied. And if we don't understand that, we're going to be tempted to avoid the word of God because we want to avoid the guilt that would be piled on. So what does this show us about us? If we're going to take this passage today and say, what does this tell us about us? I think there's a few things that we could take away and say, this is a a, a scripture that that shows us uh, what we as humans need to, to understand. I think one thing it shows us is this, that we need the grace of God even to believe. And the grace to believe that grace is enough. We don't come to that on our own. Our culture doesn't point us toward grace. Our, our culture points us toward works. But the gospel points us to grace, and it gives us the grace that we need in order to be able to believe that grace is enough. It doesn't just come natural for us. Um, we are naturally skeptical. Apart from the grace of God, we are unbelievers, and we have a hard time believing. Grace seems to be too good to be true. So it reminds us that we need God's grace even to be able to believe that that grace is enough. The second thing I think it reminds us of is this, that our our spiritual unrest is really a sign of unbelief. So when I find myself uh, not at rest with God, I need to look and say, is there some seed of unbelief in my life that I need the word of God to, to, to make manifest in me? Am I, am I not secure in my salvation? Well, if not, then why? Am I thinking that salvation is, is God plus me? That'd make me nervous because I know me. 
So I began to feel this unrest, and it's a sign that there's some unbelief that's, that's there. And, and unbelief surfaces in so many different ways, and it, it manifests itself in our lives in, in so many ways. And, and, and so it surfaces in, in ways like this. It would be like unbelief showing up in, in, in a way that would, would surface like this, me refusing to put sin to death. You say, well, how does that demonstrate unbelief? Well, if I'm not willing to put sin to death, that means that I don't believe that sin's that serious. That sin's that costly. I think that sin's something I can manage instead of killing. It's something that I can handle or I can, I can control it. And so I just let it fester there, just right below the surface. And, and I begin to ask these questions. How far is too far? How far can I go before I sin? And, and that's a sign of unbelief that, that I don't believe that sin is as serious or as bad as God says that it is. Sin, unbelief can, can surface when I settle for lesser gods in my life. I let my job become more important than my relationship with the Lord. I let my spouse or my kids become more important than the Lord. And that says to me that I'm settling for lesser gods. And it, it means I don't believe that, that God can fully satisfy me. That's unbelief. Unbelief trusts what we can see more than what God says. And this one for me has been a big one. But, but unbelief says, I've got to work for God's approval. I've got to work for God's acceptance. Instead of working from God's approval and from God's acceptance. I spent a lot of my life, guys, a lot of my time with you, trying to convince God that I love him. Trying to convince God that, that I'm good enough for him to love me. And there is such insecurity in that. There is there's this such this, this just this inward drive. I've always got to be doing something more because I need to prove to people that I'm worthy. And all that does is run you in the ground. And the root of that is an unbelief that I'm somehow not already acceptable to God. That what Jesus did on the cross was not enough to make me acceptable, was not enough to make me approved or loved by God. And the root of that is unbelief. And that's what he's, he's coming here in Hebrews and saying, don't live in that unbelief because that unbelief leaves you in unrest. And instead, you can believe that what Jesus has done is sufficient. And you can rest in that. Unbelief always leads to unrest. So God says, come and, and rest. I think another thing it tells us about us is that we need the word of God. Because we need to be laid open. And we need for God to go deep within us to unroot these, these things that are there that are producing these fruits that, that don't belong. It reveals the content of our hearts so we can experience grace. And the final thing it says to me about us is this. That we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity right now to choose. He says, while... Uh, while this moment is still there, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let's do this. There's still time for us. But it's a day-by-day decision, a day-by-day choice. So that's what I think it says about us, that we still need this grace to even experience that grace. But here's what it says about God. And that's really the focus of every passage is What does it tell us about God? 
And I think it tells us this, that God is gracious to even offer us grace. That, that God is gracious. He could, he could condemn us. He could, he could kill us. He could, he could take us out, and he could do so justly. But the fact that God's left the window open for us to come back to grace tells us just how gracious God is. It also tells us about God that he has not given up on us, that he has provided for us this moment, this window of opportunity, this today that we can get it right. His promise for rest still stands. There's still time to rest in him, he says. So he's not given up on us as his children. Third thing it says about God is that he uses his word. He uses his, his word to expose our unbelief and to cover that with his grace so that we can stand and rest in his presence. And I think the final thing that it tells me about God is that God will honor our choice. He places the choice before us just as he placed the choice before the children of Israel. He says you can believe and you can experience rest or you can stay in your unbelief and you will experience unrest. And he gives us that choice and he will honor that choice. But that choice comes with a warning that we will all stand before the Lord and give an account one day. So we've got to decide where we want to live. And, and, and I, I ask myself this question, why would anybody choose to live in unbelief? Why did I choose to live in unbelief for all that time? And I think sometimes it's due to ignorance. We just don't understand the greatness of God's grace. Maybe we haven't fully grasped that message. Maybe we fully haven't understood that. I know for me, growing up in, in, in Baptist churches in, in the South, there was a lot of hellfire and brimstone. And there was very little talk about the grace of God. And for a large part of my life, I didn't understand that, that, that grace was a thing. I, I thought it was just something you needed to get saved. But I didn't know it was something that I needed today, every single day of my life. And so sometimes it may just be ignorance. We haven't heard yet. We don't know yet. I think the second reason that we would choose to live in unbelief and to take a, a grace plus gospel, if there is such a thing, is that we like to be able to take some of the credit. If it's grace plus me, then I can stand over and say, yeah, God did his part, but I make good choices. God, God did his part, but, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy, and I've, I've worked hard to get where I'm at. I've worked hard to, to, to have what I have. I've worked hard to, to be this model citizen. But when it's grace and grace alone, I can't do that. And so sometimes just my selfish pride wants to say, yeah, God, God did a bunch, but, you know, so did I. And I think if we're honest, sometimes that's very appealing to us, to be able to take the credit for what God has done. I think on the opposite side of that coin, another reason that we live in unbelief may be the shackles of sin and shame and guilt and remorse. We feel we're unworthy of the grace of God. We feel like that we've got to do something to somehow make up for all those bad things that we've done in our past. We've got to prove that we're worthy. We've got to prove that we're really sorry. And I think that can be the motivation sometimes to live in this idea that, yeah, I know grace is big, but I've got to do my part. 
But grace calls us to come empty-handed. Grace calls us to come with, with nothing to offer. No resume of accomplishments. God, let me tell you why you ought to give me the grace. Because here's all the things that I've done for you. That'll never accomplish the grace that God has for us. We've got to come empty-handed. And no, nothing to offer to God, no promises of greatness. We just come before the Lord. And we come like that prodigal son that came. You know the story. The son that, that wanted everything that was going to be his one day, and he says, Dad, give it to me and give it to me now. And he leaves and he squanders everything that his dad gave to him. And as quick as everything was gone, so were the friends, and he's left there alone, and he's starving to death, and he's feeding the pigs. And it says even the slop that he was giving the pigs looked good for him to eat. And then Scripture says, and then he came to his senses, and he said, I'm going to go back to my father. At least his servants have food to eat. At least he cares for them. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned and I've messed up and I'm not worthy to be your son anymore, but man, if you just make me your servant and feed me, then I'll be better than I am where I'm at right now. And Luke chapter 15 lays that story out for us, but it's a picture of how we've got to come back to God. And it's a picture of this son coming back to the Lord. And the son had his speech all planned out. You come before the Lord Lord, and, and before his dad and in humility, and you just grovel before the Lord, and you pour out all the things you've done and how unworthy you are. And it's interesting that he comes back to his dad, and it says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And the father had compassion upon him, and the father ran, and he hugged him, and he kissed his neck. And he began to celebrate. And the son starts to speech, and he begins, Father, I've sinned against you, against you and against heaven. And, and the father just cuts him off and says, Son, you don't need to grovel in my presence. You just need to come. And in Luke chapter 15, we read that, that, that as, as he, he says he arose in verse 20, uh, he arose and he came to his father. But while he's still a long way off, the father saw him, and the father felt compassion there's no mention of condemnation, but compassion. And the father runs to him and embraces him and kissed him. And here's the son beginning the grovel. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've skinned before you and I'm no, no longer worthy to even be called your son. But the father just cuts him off. It wasn't the end of the speech. He said, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father says to the servants, bring quickly the best robe. Who'd the best robe belong to? Father. Bring that boy my robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and let's celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's what grace does. It doesn't require that we grovel. He needed to confess his sin, yes. He needed to, to repent in his heart. He needed to come back to his father, yes. But, but good grace says that's been covered. 
Get the robe. Cover him in my righteousness. Put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. Think about what the, the son didn't have shoes on his feet. He's hungry. He's been eating pig slop. Let's kill the fatted calf. Everything changes when grace shows up. So the father runs to him. Open arms, sincere joy. Drowns out the groveling with grace. My child is home. Rinse off the shame. Rinse off the sin. Clothe him in my righteousness. Feed him from my table. Call him by my name. And treat him as my son. For he is mine and I am his. And he's come home. Let's let the reunion begin. And then the father does something that I think is so incredible. He says, clear the dance floor. For we got to celebrate this child of mine who's come home. And the older brother out in the field, it says he begins to hear the music and hear the dancing. But doesn't know what grace is. Here's my prayer this week. God, teach me to dance. Teach me to dance. To the rhythm of your grace, teach me to dance. I spent my life groveling. And you cut that off and you say, that's, that's who you were. It's no longer who you are. Let's celebrate. Let's dance. Teach me to dance. My son who was lost is now found. My son who was dead is now fully alive. Strike up the band. Play Amazing Grace. Let's dance to the rhythm of God's grace. My prayer for me and for you is, God, can you teach us Baptists to dance? Can you teach us to dance to the rhythm of your grace. Clothe us in your righteousness, yes. Feed us from your table, yes. Call us by your name, yes. But God, teach us to just dance in your presence. That's what grace does. It sets your feet to dancing. Because the past is the past. And you live in the moment Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart and stay in unbelief. Dance to the rhythm of grace. Believe that what God has done is enough. And for this father and this son, the clothes came out, the shoes came out, the ring came out, the animal was killed. And the feast began. And for you and I, guys, there was a lamb that was slain. There was sin that was covered. There's a robe of righteousness that God's brought out. There's food from his table. There is his name that we bear. And all that's left to do is for us to dance.
to the rhythm of his grace and to celebrate as our Father celebrates over us. That's what grace is all about. And that's what grace calls us to. He waits and he watches. And he says to us today, today, don't stay in the pig pen. Today, come home and let me celebrate over you that my child who wants straight and we all have, he's home. And let's dance to the rhythm of God's grace. Would you pray with me?